having kind of a rough low energy day so I'm going to revive some audio from a couple years ago. It's not currently online anywhere else and I think it's evergreen enough to share again. Also I've joined Mastodon. I was on it before but my presence was kind of scattered and not focused. So if you go to bronto.rodeo slash about, at the bottom of the page, there's links to all the socials, including Mastodon, if you'd like to connect. This month marks uh, my 15-year anniversary of podcasting. I, I'm pretty sure I published my first episode January 27. It's not a terribly exciting story, but I don't know that I've ever told uh, the in-depth story of um, how I started. In uh, summer of 2004, I launched my first real website with a domain name. That's phantompower.org. Still exists, but doesn't really do anything other than handle my email. I had this idea at the time of just recording radio shows as mp3 files and just posting them on my website and just kind of see hey if anybody finds them great that idea grew out of the fact that I'd been publishing music on the internet for a few years and really in one way or another publishing on the internet since 97 and I I had this idea to do these radio shows I had enough gear already I had the know-how to record audio because I'd been doing it with music for a few years and you know I had a cup of coffee in radio back in 1996 because I went to broadcasting school from 95 into 96, got an internship at WABT-FM, eventually worked on air there up until the point when the radio station went off air. It was bought out by a Spanish radio conglomerate and they pretty much turned it into a robo station of historical noteworthiness 96 is the year that the telecommunications act was modified to highly deregulate radio and that gave the rise of these massive mega radio companies. So I really got into radio at the right time, just in time to have all of the small stations that people would usually start out in, bought out and automated across the country. So 2004, I had this idea, and clearly the idea, Idea of somehow publishing uh, some type of internet radio show that wasn't just streamed, 
over some sort of uh, streaming protocol like Shoutcast or Icecast, which I believe those existed then. Just something you could download and listen to when you wanted. Clearly that idea was uh, circulating amongst the people of the world. Later that year, before I had published any of these so-called radio shows, I was part of a Yahoo group that was dedicated to the Nick DiGilio radio show. Uh, Nick DiGilio was, and I believe still is, a host on WGN Radio out of Chicago. And uh, Nick was a weekend warrior guy who would work all these weird shifts, but he developed uh, a following, including me. This Yahoo group was really run by fans, though Nick and some of his producers eventually did join the group. And one of the conversations in late 2004 in this Yahoo group, I mentioned about how I used to work in, well, I barely worked in radio. Another member of the group, George Smith, said, well, maybe you should start a podcast. And I was, I, I was like, huh, what is that? And I think I might have said, I'm not sure I know what that is. And he said, yeah, you should look it up. It's this kind of new thing. It was started by Adam Curry. It used to be on MTV. So I started researching it. And immediately I was just really taken with the whole thing. So it was probably in November 2004, I started just listening to podcasts. And the first show I listened to was Adam Curry's Daily Source Code. And I listened to uh, Don and Drew and East Radio. At that time, there weren't any dedicated podcast directories. There were places that were kind of aggregating podcasts on a very loose basis. One of them was audio.weblogs.com. You could set up your publishing system to ping that URL. And if your podcast feed had media enclosures, it would just show up there. So that was one of the early, maybe the earliest uh, type of podcast aggregator. Uh, Later, there were directories like iPodder. But I don't know, I kept finding these shows and I would uh, do my best to keep up with them. There weren't really many good podcatchers back then. I remember there was one called PlayPod where you could subscribe to podcast feeds and, you know, it would download the the media files and often um, you had to manually move them from PlayPod over to iTunes or something like that. It wasn't a great system, but it kind of worked. At that time, uh, late 2004 into early 2005, I'd picked up a retail job in a shopping mall, a kiosk called Glass Gallery. And this was Christmas time, so a lot of days, once it really started to pick up, a lot of days I was just coming home dead tired. 
So I didn't really have much time to getting this podcast started. But I felt like for the first time, I ha- it felt like there was a path to go down if you wanted to do, you know, this so-called internet radio show thing. By mid-January, things had slowed down enough with this job, which was only a seasonal job and wasn't going to last much longer, that I could really start to dig into actually publishing a podcast. And I got a, a real rudimentary set of gear together. I was using a realistic brand, which is uh, one of the old Radio Shack brands, a realistic mixer that uh, my dad bought me some years ago. I, I think he found it at a, I don't know, a thrift store or something. It wasn't a great mixer. It was really one of these things that was designed for... You know, if you wanted to uh, DJ your your barbecue or, you know, your kid's birthday party or whatever, it had uh, three quarter-inch, not XLR, but three uh, mic inputs, quarter-inch mic inputs, and it had, I believe, three stereo RCA channels and two of the channels were specifically for turntables and the reason I believe this mixer was built for you know backyard DJs is uh, the the turntable channels had uh, crossfade uh, switches on them and you know if this was something that was just going to sit on, uh, sit in somebody's, you know, stereo or something at home. There wouldn't be any reason for, uh, crossfaders. I, uh, plugged some cheap mics I had into that mixer. And really when I started, it was only me. So it was one mic. I took the, um, the audio out of Jen's iMac. She had a uh, G3, lime green iMac and uh, I put uh, some music and stuff uh, sound clips onto her iMac and I ran that audio cable out into this realistic mixer and god I had a name for that I called it something like the the Soundatron 2000 or something some stupid thing I called it I tapped the audio output from the mixer and ran that into, uh, I had a Tascam US-122 connected to my Mac, which another long story, but I I had a G4 iBook at the time. It's kind of weird. But um, I took the line out from the mixer into the US-122, which was probably a USB-1 you know, a USB 1.2 interface, so it could only do one one stereo track. It didn't have a lot of bandwidth, but it was enough. 
And uh, what I would do is I would load um, the sound clips I wanted into the iTunes library on the iMac and I'd put them in a playlist so I could effectively control them with the keyboard and I would kind of do a, you know, a, 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 a cue sheet, man, like a playlist. Well, it was a playlist inside the uh, application. And uh, with the keyboard, I could, you know, start and stop the clips and cycle to the next one. And it was as close as I could come up with for replicating a cart deck. And to my knowledge, I didn't really check, but to my knowledge, there really weren't any cart wall style applications back then. You know, so it worked okay. And, uh, you know, I took the uh, US-122 into the Mac and I recorded with GarageBand. And I really wanted the whole thing to have a live-to-drive kind of feel. And, I mean, I was mixing everything live. So if I did a music bed or something, I'd roll the music bed and bring the, you know, I'd bring it down with the fader and talk over it as opposed to doing all that in post. I really wanted it to be live. You know, I recorded uh, a few episodes. They were short you know, probably under a half hour each. I, I had, you know, my website, I had figured out um, in 2004 how to roll my own movable type installation. And uh, movable type is kind of a precursor CMS to WordPress. I'm sure it's still out there, but I think once WordPress came around, Six Apart, the company that made movable type, they just went, okay, babe, they ate our lunch, our breakfast, our dinner, and all our snacks. So we're just going to focus mostly on enterprise stuff. But I, I rolled this movable type installation, and I knew that it generated RSS feeds, but I didn't understand the... I didn't understand how to modify... RSS to handle the media enclosures. So I was poking around online and I found what I'm pretty sure was the Podcast Alley forums, which I think was really the, one of the first, if not the first, kind of online forum where podcasters were talking to each other. And somewhere in there, I learned about FeedBurner. And uh, FeedBurner at the time was a startup. And uh, there was kind of this magical, mystical period from about 2003 to maybe 2006 where it looked like RSS was going to be the, the glue, you know, the thing that was going to make publishing on the Internet you know, truly decentralized publishing on the internet somehow work. And um, uh, FeedBurner was this, you know, RSS feed uh, publishing and, and stats service. They were a startup. And when they saw that podcasting was becoming popular, they added their SmartCast feature. So if you wanted to turn any FeedBurner feed 
into a podcast feed. You just had to go in, uh, put in a few settings, and then when you would publish an episode in your source feed, you had to have one you know, naked or direct link to a media file, and FeedBurner would wrap it in the enclosure tags, and that would you know, turn your source feed into a podcast feed you know, through FeedBurner. It didn't, it didn't edit the source feed. It just made its own you know, second feed through FeedBurner because that's what FeedBurner does. And all I wanted was to just do it. I just wanted to get it out there. And when I talk about the tags, here's one for podcast nerds. The only podcast tags in feedback then were just the uh, enclosure tag and any basic, you know, metadata that lit or any any basic extensions to the media enclosure, which was really just a, a file URL and, oh man, length and size, I think, or duration. And it's kind of confusing because uh, duration was the total length of the, the media. So if it was, you know, 30 minutes, uh, you had to put it in, I believe, I believe the duration tag it has to be the total number of seconds. And then uh, uh, length was actually, still is, uh, the, for the size of the file. It's kind of confusing. And it, that has to be in, um, I believe, kilobytes. Kilobits? I think it's kilobits. There were no iTunes or Apple Podcast tags. There were no... Google tags, you know, none of this other stuff that's been added to make podcast feeds work was even there yet. So once I had FeedBurner up and running, I was like, cool, I got everything I need. And uh, I figured out how to make my movable type installation, or maybe FeedBurner did this, I don't know, uh, ping audio.weblogs.com. So you know, late January, I go to publish my first episode. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny now, uh, <laughs> thinking about this, because in my job, where I do podcast support, one of the things we constantly deal with is, well, why isn't my latest episode, <laughs> why is it my latest episode, and, and then, you know, name your favorite uh, podcast app slash directory, usually it's Apple or Spotify, but why isn't my latest episode? I published it, you know, 20 minutes or two hours or two days ago. Why isn't it there? And I remember going back to audio.weblogs.com, which was just this very random cascade of podcast episodes that was, uh, you know, coming down this... Uh, digital pike and uh, you know I would go back and refresh it every now and then and finally I saw my episode there and I was like I've done it I've published a podcast and you know people that are paying attention to this one single thing this audio.weblogs.com presumably could find it and listen to it so it felt like 
uh, a real achievement. And um, the podcast itself was called The Phantom Feed. And uh, it's obviously not online anymore. And I was publishing like maybe two episodes a week. And they were, you know, 30 to 45 minutes a piece. And at this point, there still weren't a lot of robust podcast publishing tools. Uh, Libsyn existed, but I wasn't. I don't know if I knew about it, and if I did, I wasn't going to pay them another fee on top of my web hosting fee. So, you know, like you might do in 2005, I was self-hosting the media files, and fortunately, for better or worse, I never, I never pulled enough resources on the server that they shut me down or sent me a big bill which uh, that happened to a lot of podcasters early on. And, you know, you hear people from back then kind of talk about the the spit and chewing gum uh, methodologies that they use to keep their podcasts online, but I never had that problem. And it's pretty much a condition that's stayed through most of my podcast endeavors. A couple weeks later, and I kind of think, coincidentally perhaps, that it was on Valentine's Day, or it was close to it, it was either the 14th or 15th of February, I uh, talked Jen into doing a podcast with me, and um, she was reluctant, and, you know, we (laughs) shared a microphone you know, we did the show pretty much the way I, I normally would. And, you know, we I don't even remember what we talked about. But um, I, I, I had been asking for, uh, for feedback. You know, just somebody send an email. Because I could kind of tell, based on what very minimal stats I had, that some people had downloaded the episodes I'd published. So, I knew somebody was out there. And uh, finally, after, uh, you know, weeks of solo podcasting, I do the one show with Jen. And we finally get an email from someone that said something along the lines of, uh, you know, and it was more or less addressed to me. And it said, yeah, you're fine, but she's really good. (laughs) I was like, great. This makes me feel wonderful. So pretty much from that point on, uh, you know, it stayed the two of us uh, occasionally. I would still do a solo show. Eventually the iPodder, Adam Curry's iPodder directory went online. And the iPodder directory was interesting because it wasn't really broken out just by say, genre of show. And one of the things you could do was you could submit a show to iPodder under a geographic area. So, you know, I picked uh, Illinois, Chicago, and 
submitted my show and you know a little while later it got added the most notable thing really that happened during that period was daily herald newspaper which was a uh, suburban chicago area paper did an article about uh you know locals take up podcasting and they talked to hosts of i don't know maybe four or five different chicago area shows including me uh, jen was at work when they called me uh, they talked to me and they talked to uh, there was another show that i really liked that's long 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 gone called the unemployment line and uh that was done by three three guys who you know were unemployed at the time so that was cool to just kind of hey get a little bit of coverage in the media we kept producing episodes on a fairly regular basis and then in april we decided to move to california and um pretty much ended the phantom feed for all it was worth we really you know had to switch gears into just you know getting things packed and figuring out okay what are we going to keep what are we going to get rid of and i actually sold uh that g4i book you know that whole period of time which was from april of 2005 until like February or March of 2006 really turned out to be kind of podcasting's first milestone in the sense that that was when Apple launched the podcasts directory in the iTunes store which was really like the first kind of big mind-blowing moment and I followed along as best as I could I, I I didn't I didn't have any way really to listen to podcasts but I would try to follow all the forums and you know any source that was a decent source for news I would go and look it up you know see what was going on we didn't get settled into the place we're in now until uh, February 06. And that's when I started um, recording my first uh, audio blog. And that was really an experiment to just try to have an understanding of kind of all the new stuff in podcasting as far as, you know, well, how do you make an iTunes feed and all that kind of stuff I think by then Feedburner had actually added the iTunes tags in to its SmartCast feature so I just used Feedburner again it was funny uh, in the coming months Jen would constantly ask me like well when are we going to podcast again so you know, her going from the reluctant co-host to the one who was, uh, you know, really anxious to get going again was amusing. And she bothered me enough about it. And I don't know, I, it was, it was a weird time for me. (laughs) And 
I was kind of freaking out about money and I knew that, you know, cause I sold, I sold the US 122. I knew I was going to have to get a new interface. So I finally just bought a, an Elisis uh, multi-mix, the Firewire 8 Firewire mixer on credit because it was the only way I was ever going to be able to afford it. You know, not long after that, we started doing Hyper Nonsense, the first version. Um, we had kind of decided that, you know, the Phantom feed was fine, but it didn't really need, you know, it just kind of felt like it was, it, it wasn't a brand that had, you know, really caught fire. <laughs> and really, that's kind of how podcasting was back then. You know, there was no, I don't know, there wasn't any plans. It's like nobody even knew if this was even going to last as anything, you know, noteworthy or recognizable beyond a year or two, or if it would just kind of fade into the background, kind of like blogging did. Jen got the idea for the name Hyper Nonsense because she had seen um, some piece of art on uh, Live Journal. And I don't know if it was some poorly translated uh, piece of um, manga or if it was someone's ironic attempt at making a poorly translated piece of manga. But it's an image of a very, you know, manga-looking girl and it said hyper-nonsense Tabasco shower on it. And it was like, well, what the hell does that mean? Well, hyper-nonsense is kind of a cool name for a show. So in June of 2006, we published the first episode of that. And uh, again, I started with uh, movable type and feed burner. And now um, I had the, um, the multi-mix, you know, the realistic mixer went back in the... Uh, back in the drawer it was a different experience you know we had to start our 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 place was just not really set up yet because we just we had to kind of move in a hurry and um you know it kind of sucked because i had the the multi-mix on the end of my desk the microphones were on uh floor stands in the corner so Every time we wanted to record, we had to set them up, which was a drag. But we still did it, and it was fun. Uh, I figured out how to trigger music beds and audio clips from my new, at that time, Mac Mini. I basically created an audio loop where I could take the, um, the analog output of the Mini into a channel on the multi-mix, and then just record everything back into the mini via firewire and that's one of those things that you feel like shouldn't work so kudos to uh the apple audio uh developers back then they actually made a pretty dynamic um audio routing system at a time when it wasn't necessarily a, a big uh call for that recorded edited in garage band and 
you know, it was, again, a very live-to-drive kind of thing. We didn't do a lot of uh, post, a lot of work in post, man. And it was fun. I think the most fun I ever had with podcasting was doing Hyper Nonsense circa 2008 up until when it ended the first time in 2009 because, you know, social media hadn't just taken over everything. So we had just built a nice uh, community of people that would interact with us over our website. There was a uh, plugin. Uh, by now I had moved everything over to WordPress. So there was a plugin that uh, would you could you could use to make a a comment leaderboard. So, you know, people would have contests to try to get to the top of the leaderboard and by leaving comments and it spurred a lot of um, a lot of discussions, not just between listeners and us, but the listeners themselves. The audience themselves. Sorry, I'm not supposed to refer to podcast listeners as listeners. They're the audience. I don't know, 2009, I was just feeling like I needed to do something different. I felt like the show had kind of taken, it had gone as far as it needed to. And it was clear by then that there wasn't going to be as, there wasn't going to be a monolithic force that was going to create a sea change in podcasting. And I think we really believed up until around that time, 2009, 2010, that something was just going to break loose. And it never really did. The shows that had managed to become financially successful by that point were just doing it all on their own. They were doing some combination of advertising. And they might have been working with some sort of broker like PodTrack or something. They were doing some combination of that and uh, merchandise sales and just direct fan support. You know, there wasn't a, I don't want to say YouTube moment, but, you know, all of the, the, the only company that really tried to build a, a podcast you know, uh, uh, network, I guess we'll just say, that was really based on old media ideas as far as, well, we'll just get a bunch of shows and we'll uh, throw a bunch of ads on them and collect the money, was uh, Podshow, later Mevio. And they, by, by 2009, 2010, they were starting to burn out. And it was clear that podcasting was just going to kind of coalesce into this thing where, you know, if, if you were lucky, uh, if you did good work and you were lucky and you built an audience, you might be able to turn that into something as far as money's concerned. But you probably won't do that. And I think at its peak, Hyper Nonsense had... 
an audience of maybe 400. Now, it's probably an overestimation. But I just felt like, uh, you know, it was time to move on to something else, which, uh, you know, 10, well, 11 years later, I still haven't really done. Uh, of course, Hypernonsense 2.0 has occurred now three, three times. Um, there was Gemini Dragon, No Market Radio, and the return of actual hypernonsense. And um, the psychologists read on this as just the actual insanity of trying to, you know, do the same thing and get different results. The thing is, is that every time I would stop doing a show like that, I would really miss it. And I would try to try to restart it and do I would do things slightly differently every time and we'd always get to the same point we just always get to kind of the same base format so it was really kind of pointless I guess that's just how for some reason when when me and Jen would try and do a show that's just what it would always kind of organically go back to you know, it's it's over now. It's done for good. There's not there there's not never going to be a hyper nonsense 3.0. Uh, it's really truly run its course, and um, you know that's how these things operate. You know, I think about it now. I mean, 15 years is a pretty long time. I wish that I had more to show of it in terms of some kind of success I really don't probably the biggest thing that's come out of it for me personally is I I work in podcasting now and I am grateful for that but I'm not producing a show that makes money I'm barely producing anything so you know, it's like, yeah, I'm just a cog. I'm, I'm a, I'm the, I'm a, t- a, a, a tiny cog inside of one bigger than medium-sized wheel. And if my cog were to f- were to fall out, uh, the the whole machine would continue to to move forward with really no trouble at all. I I have a lot of uh, thoughts on that, but that'll maybe be for another uh, blog, either text or audio or something else. 